Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. I'm sorry to say that this is not the movie you will be watching. The movie you are about to see is extremely unpleasant. If you wish to see a film about a happy little elf, I'm sure there is still plenty of seating in theatre number two. However, if you like stories about clever and reasonably attractive orphans, suspicious fires, carnivorous leeches, Italian food and secret organisations, then stay as I retrace each and every one of the Baudelaire children's woeful steps. My name is Lemony Snicket, and it is my sad duty to document this tale. Tonight we are covering both the 2004 movie and the 2017 Netflix series with useful and relevant connections to the source material books. We are joined in tonight's investigations by Karu Nagisa. Hello there. And Debbie Morse. Hello of the YouTube series Sequentially Yours. Hello and welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Also with us for the first time are Tyler Pollock. Hello. And Devin York. Salutations. I extend a warm welcome to you all. Thank you for agreeing to help us unpick and examine the various details of the regrettable situations contained within these accounts. It is, as always, imperative that we be rational in our analysis, the retellings scattered with misinformation, oversight and fallacy as they may be. And delineate, a word here which means to make clearer, the differences in approaches, strengths, and restrictions of all three mediums. The story begins simply enough and becomes... I'm going to go back to Jude Law. The story begins simply enough and becomes (laughs) complex as it proceeds. Three children are left orphaned after a house fire claims the lives of their parents. They are taken to live with a new guardian named Count Olaf, whom it becomes apparent has designs on the fortune that was left to them. When they are legally allowed to part company with him due to his unsuitability, he pursues them in various disguises. The conflict arises from the surrounding adult's inability to identify this man for the charlatan he is. Only the young, the shrewd, and those with bite are able to see what should be blindingly obvious to anyone with half a brain, that he is greedy and self-serving, arrogant, pompous, spiteful, dangerously small-minded, surrounded by an equally twisted series of toadying lackeys, and manifestly should have never been given this responsibility. There has not been a more appropriate time for this to become a popular television series. So let us begin with an investigation into the backgrounds and personalities of the Baudelaire orphans. First off, have any of those assembled studied the books in any great length? They made me the cynic that I am today. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was about eight or or nine when I first picked up. uh, I got... I got the first three in a box set, and I, I read the first one in about uh, two hours, which for me at that time was pretty fast. Um, I felt like I could relate to the Baudelaire's, even though I didn't have, you know, a mansion that burned down and my parents weren't dead. They were kids who knew things, and the adults around them dismissed them. That, that was one of the major things I could really relate to. Mm. Okay. I can understand that. That was one of the reasons I got into the Famous Five books when I was a kid. When, whenever I looked at the cover, I th- always... I read the t- cover and the title, and I always thought, hmm, that looks like a very um, 
very particular take on a children's novel. Uh, back then, I was just really starting to get into le- literature. I was uh, reading Harry Potter, the Junie B. Jones, and all those more kind of happy-go-lucky books as a kid. And to me, what kind of drew them was whenever I read Lemony, Lemony Snicket's uh, very dry, very coarse way of describing things. I liked the way that he kind of didn't try to hide anything. He kind of made everything very blunt, very um, upfront. And it was very rare for, at least from what I can remember, children's books to have that kind of um, edge to them. And I think that's ultimately what drew me drew me into them. I started out reading The Bad Beginning. I fell in love with it. I immediately pick, picked up Reptile Room. I fell in love with it, and it went, basically went straight on from there. And I was a big fan of the series for a long time. Lemony talked to you, at least, to the, to the reader, as, a, as an equal. But he also, you know, did take time to point out what words meant and I think that with for me specifically that that was really nice and something that I hadn't felt from any author before that's probably quite that helpful for most kids that don't read books with a dictionary next to them so that they can look up words that they're not 100% sure about <laughs> yeah exactly especially back Very before helpful. you had instant access to google I was in college when I read the first book, and I, I think it's very specific to its audience, and I think that I'm sure I, I get what you're saying totally, that at, you know, between about 8 and 12, you would identify with this highly, and it, that makes total sense. Myself, they I read, I believe, the first book, and I started the second and I was ready to throw it across the room. For uh, how sad and depressing it gets. <laughs> yes, but more specifically for the absolute stupidity of all of the adults. Yeah. And, yeah. See that as a he's, he's one of those how do you maintain being a policeman type of guys. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, oh, I, I just, I was like, no, I'm sorry. These, these adults are too stupid stupid to live. Yeah. Plus there's also that sense that as an adult you kind of feel more protective for the kids. Like watching the Goonies as a kid, you're like, oh yeah, this is awesome. As an adult, you're like, oh my, that is so dangerous. What are you doing? Why are children allowed to <laughs> zip line from their house? Who, who is watching Oh my god, kids? they're all gonna drown. <laughs> How do you even know the chicken's gonna lay an egg to open that gate? Yeah. Yes. Chicken is, chicken is trained to lay an egg whenever it's frightened. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, from the, the bluntness that you're describing, it actually uh, makes them sound more like pulp novels. Although, would the, the style of noirish pulp novels be a bit more... Um, oh, what's the word where it's... Like, Descriptive? trying to be overly gritty. Maybe not. Maybe they're just yeah, frank DC pulp movie? novels. Just the, 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 if nothing else, the regularity with which uh, Dan was able to put them out. Um, there's like two a year, so it was like it was thirteen books over seven years. That's that's impressive. Mm-hmm. Yes, very. I I think the last couple books had quite a bit of a time between them, just so, just so we can hammer out the kinks and figure out where he wanted to go with it but yeah he was putting out quite a bit i remember he was on like book eight by 
like 2003 and that's when I really really that's when I basically started to get into the series by 2003 so that's hang on that's four years eight books yeah two still a two a year mm-hmm. yeah the f- books were not done when they, they became a film it was uh, 2004 and so uh, the, the last few were still uh, yet to come out and um, uh, the film was manifestly uh uh, Paramount chasing the Harry Potter dollars. They were like, we've got to get a book franchise. Quick, now, quick, go, 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 go. Something with precocious kids in it that get into sort of trouble that we can have be overly stylized, have really fun trailers and posters and get, you know, major actors in there. And, and when, we're talking major. Like, Meryl Streep is not just somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Billy Connolly. Jim Carrey, too. Yeah. Burton was oh, supposed to direct style. it and he dropped out at the last minute. Oh, really? That's how they got... Pre- yeah, uh, guess it- who he wanted for Count Olaf. Uh, Johnny Depp. <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter, clearly. Well, Helena no, Bonham Carter is... It was, in fact, it was, in fact, Johnny Depp. Helena yes, Bonham Carter Depp. is actually in it. Yes, she is. She, 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 uh, she's Beatrice. Yeah, she's Beatrice, their, their mother, in like a blurry, out-of-shot table sequence when Sonny's biting the table. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, but, yeah, no, the, the, the film was, was Paramount going, we got to get some of this Potter Dollar stuff. And then... It cost 140 million, and uh, like this is after they had a serious crisis point, and uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, director of Men in Black, dropped out, and um, the the uh, the writer Dan uh, said, you know, uh, also the writer Dan, what's his name? Handler. Handler. Daniel Handler. Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket himself, had been uh, commissioned to write the script to adapt it. This is my dream job, by the way, to basically. Um, Although I'd also want to exec produce so that I couldn't be fired from the film. Because <laughs> um, I'd have to fire myself. Uh, but uh, no, um, he was commissioned to basically write the script. And at the crisis point, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld walked, Scott Rudin, the producer, walked, and they uh, Paramount fired Dan. And they got in Robert Gordon to write the script. Um, so it, it ended up spiraling up to $140 million. And I think a lot of that probably went on buying a large water tank. Just yep. don't, don't buy large water tanks. We can do without them. Now, that, God knows how much that thing costs. But obviously, it, uh, you know, working with large water tanks, you've got loads of safety issues. you got loads of, uh, uh, like, the whole studio needs to be sort of set up around it. And there is, obviously, in the Curdle Cave sections, quite a lot of water-based stuff. Yeah. But there are mm-hmm. ways, and especially considering how theatrical the whole thing looks. The whole thing looks like it's uh, a play possibly put on by particularly eccentric children. And uh, to that end, you can show water without actually having to ha- you know to invest that heavily and the amount of big water tanks that people bought in the late 90s yeah <laughs> like the the uh the titanic one they they basically got on the cheap because it was like after water world tanked um they, yeah, they were like all these tanks they don't want to buy a tank and uh Max and, Fisher could have done it yeah, with that tank they uh they uh so they made um this for 140 million dollars and it made like 296 is it 209 so that's that's pathetic. That's the the budget plus the marketing and some change to Paramount. And so Paramount did what all studios did. They went um and ah for years. Meanwhile, Emily Browning and uh, Liam Aiken were just you know starting to grow taller. Their voices were starting to change. Liam Aiken was starting to grow chin fuzz, and they were becoming less and less like children all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there was talk for a while that it would get uh, a sequel in stop motion. Could you imagine yeah. how much uh, it would be lovely to look at? And we're talking, you know, Leica would be wonderful to do one of these. But you, oh, okay. at maximum, you'd be able oh to do God. two books per film. And how many films would you have to do to get to the end? And people don't like stop motion animation. They don't go and see these films. So it still wouldn't be making money. It would take someone at Paramount to go, you know what? I don't care if these don't make money. We're going to keep throwing money into them. The fact that it's turned up on Netflix at all is miraculous and extremely good news. Very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the actual film itself. Uh, one of the things that uh, Dan said about um, writing the script, he was sad that it didn't end up, they didn't end up using his script, but he said, you know, I wrote a script for uh, Barry Sonnenfeld and uh, uh, Brad Silberling and Sonnenfeld make very different films. And I just thought, do they? <laughs> do they really? <laughs> Is this that different to Men in Black or, or um, uh, what else has uh, Sonnenfeld done? Uh, Get Shorty? Yeah. Uh, what, what, yes. What? Okay, how, how about, is this all that different to A Series of Unfortunate Events, the Netflix series? <laughs> I mean, um, it could be I The Kettle Before the Horse that Sonnenfeld was like, right, I, there are things about that film that I really, really like and want to retain, and so he emulated that style. But it looks like, okay, right. Adam's Family Values. Yes, it really does look like Adam's Family. Mm. Did you it say does, the kettle yeah. before uh, the horse, yeah, I, by the way? Yeah, <laughs> the kettle calling the horse black. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is that it doesn't look like Land of the Lost. No, yes. It I also, got it too, Sharon. It doesn't, look like, <laughs> it doesn't look like City of Angels either. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Looking at uh, what Brad Silberling's done, I feel really sorry for the guy because it's just been this... Like like stream of of um, films that people didn't go to see. Like ten items or less is a Morgan Freeman drama. Uh, it, it made one point three million. How much do you think the budget of that film was? That must have like barely broken even at best. Um, Land of the Lost cost a hundred million, made sixty eight million. This is another one of those reasons why Will Ferrell is not a bankable star. You know, he, he he makes bad movies that people don't want to see and aren't funny. Good job, comedian. Um, Moonlight Mile. to ruin Casper as an idea. Yeah, Casper actually probably was the reason why Sibylin got this job because that made you know fifty five and it made two eighty seven. Uh, but if you look at their um, uh, critical reception, Casper got forty four percent, City of Angels fifty nine percent, Moonlight Mile sixty three, Lemony Snicket's his best. Received film seventy two percent. That's still not fantastic critically, and oh. then ten items or less sixty three, and then plummeting down to Land of the Lost at twenty six, and he hasn't worked since. I was just going to say you'll notice two thousand nine. This is uh, this is a bad deal for studios, and it's a damn shame because Lemony Snicket's is really to me it's really good, and I've heard people bitch about this film and how different it is to the books and how bad it is. And I'm thinking, did we see the same film? But, you know, we can carry on, and it might turn out that you guys are not massive fans of it, but that's fine. Well, funny enough, I wasn't a massive fan of it when I saw it in theaters, but I guess that was just me being a little Harry Potter child going, oh, it's not the exact same thing as the book, and therefore it's not as as good as I wanted it to be. But honestly, on a second viewing, it was so much better than I remembered it being. I mean, I still got a couple problems, mostly with Jim Carrey as Count Olaf, but mm-hmm. we'll get to that when we get to that. But yeah. I like it so much better on a second viewing. Mm. I like it Go more ahead. as a film buff than I like it as a film viewer. 
As a film buff, I can see what's going on there. Like the, the fact that everything is a set, I think is kind of cool that they can, can that they controlled everything, even the exterior shots, that much to make it see. And the production design, I think, on is phenomenal. Hmm. As a movie viewer, it's I didn't like it quite as much. There are a lot of things that, that I really kind of hated about it. Nothing, I, nothing that I thought that made it a terrible film, but nothing also that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen this movie since it came out, and I hated it when it came out. It it's definitely has its problems, but it's not it's not as terrible as I thought it was. I think I was just so mad at the time that they had messed up the format of the books, and you know there was Jim Carrey doing his Jim Carrey thing yeah. mm-hmm. very much. Um, that doesn't become just, quite I, so apparent until you read the book afterwards and go, "Wow, this Count Olaf is really restrained." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, which indicates that maybe Jim Carrey should be restrained. <laughs> Probably, maybe well, at least just... placed in restraints. Um... He is in, in, Jim Carrey is usually at his best when he's got a director that can make him be normal for portions of the film. Yeah, the uh, the, the the part of Jim. Okay, I really liked when we were introduced to him, like that first ten or so minutes. Um. And then it just, he started doing the, you know, the dinosaur thing and the... Electric chair thing. Yeah. I do like the suit. I've always liked the suit, though. Yeah. The the Count Olaf suit. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the profile, when when he turns sideways on the chair and you just see his hair sticking out at that really crazy angle and he's just got this incredible side profile to that face. They did an amazing job on the makeup there. Yeah, the profile profile is... is, uh, is It it matches the books perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jim Carrey can act through the makeup well enough that it it works. It feels natural when when he's on screen. I do wonder what people would have made of the film if Jim Carrey had reined it in and basically just been this sort of threatening presence as Count Olaf. Would people have gone, I don't like this Jim Carrey? Or would they have gone, you know what? He was less annoying this time. Because people don't go, people go to see Jim Carrey go crazy or act dramatically. Yeah. yeah. I suppose, but. Yeah, really. I think one of the big problems that people had with this film was that it isn't hugely different from the source material, but it's different enough that it made it made people kind of snuff their snuff their nose at it because of how different it was. And I would say that Count Olaf as a character in the book comes off kind of more as like Lord Lord Voldemort than he does as a Neil Patrick Terrace's and Jim Carrey's version of him. He, mm. In in the books, he's very much. Res- He's very much sinister. He's kind of conniving. He doesn't. He kind of is in there in the background, but he isn't really out there to touch you, touch you, or get in your way and stuff like that. He's kind of kind of. Ah, I'm having a really rough time explaining this, but he seems more like the comparison I brought up earlier, like Lord Voldemort rather than. Ah. Is he that terrifying though? Because when I think Lord Voldemort, I he, think of he, that is genuinely terrifying performance. Whereas. I, that Olaf has these really creepy moments, but by and large, he seems kind of buffoonish. For me, I, I, I've always, I always saw Olaf as, as the latter, more of he, the intent, and he has his moments where he's terrifying. He just kind of bumbles around. It's, it's the little things that he does that, that are really just terrifying. The constant touching 
of of Violet, especially at the end of the first. Yeah, and during uh, the wedding. Well, like I I didn't really get that. I, I I can't exactly remember if like that was in the books, the constant touching, and the, I really liked the way that um that Neil Patrick Harris portrayed him because it felt right to me, but also it was you know my opinion of what Olaf is is probably different from I mean it's different from what Devin thinks he is. So yeah. yes, but. Own. One thing but I'd to... say about the, the there's a definite uh, parallel between the way Carey and uh, Neil Patrick Harris play him is that they're they're both comedic actors. <clears throat> they yeah. both have yes. um, a an approach that emphasizes that buffoonery ever so slightly. And so you're saying you'd like to see what uh, Daniel Day Lewis Count Olaf could do. <laughs> <laughs> or Ray Fiennes, maybe, while we're talking Voldemort. Mm. Um, but um, no, no, no. But, but just because that was one of the things that I found was quite similar between the, uh, the series and the film, was certainly in the way they looked, was... Very much spot on, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, and I think from the illustrations on the front covers of the book, that's that's basically because they were both being pretty faithful to the source material. Um, but I do think both of them play the comedy of the character. They play it slightly differently, but it does diminish the threat slightly, but not necessarily in a bad way. I think that is basically to make it more approachable to slightly younger children mm, who mm. would get proper freaked out yeah. by somebody who More was really overplaying the threat. I suppose it's one thing More to read like, it yeah. safely in a book and it's another thing to have it acted out malevolently on screen exactly, where you yeah. don't have any control over what the actor is going yeah, to do. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's the the similarity between Olaf in the books and uh, Voldemort in the Harry Potter books is that basically you as the reader, whether you be 8, 18 or 28, you get to create that character in your mind exactly as threatening as you can cope with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it also is when you. Th- I think part of the reason why this translation keeps happening is that, quite frankly, Olaf is inherently a silly concept for a character. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is a terrible actor who thinks he's amazing, wears silly costumes to try to uh, steal the fortune of three orphans. Yeah, that is a silly concept, and trying to play it too straight might not work in a visual medium when you can actually see his ridiculous nose and his insane hair mm. and everything else. It's you know, yeah. it's hard to do Pennywise, the clown. It One is. of the mm-hmm. uh, scathing Amazon movie reviews I read of this, and we all know how on the ball those are, um, mm. was complaining, they turned this book series into a comedy. The series of unfortunate events is not a comedy. And I thought, <laughs> yes, it is. It's a black yeah. comedy. It's very dry. It might not seem funny to you, but it is definitely intended as humor. Mm. So if you yes. play Count Olaf absolutely deadly seriously as a murderer, in uh, what, like, whilst the ridiculousness is actually going on on screen, I mean, even outside of the more uh, out there hijinks of the film uh, in the Netflix series, if, if they had played the Netflix series straight, it would be very somber. And not there wouldn't Tragic. be much to yeah. it to really yeah. draw you in. I don't. No one would want to watch. 
The other thing, and this is very important to remember, is that the book readership for any movie adaptation that comes out is always going to be a small percentage of the total audience. So it doesn't matter how many yeah. people sniffily turn up their noses at that version of Count Olaf, it really falls down to John Q. Public to basically either embrace or reject that film. The, the massive buzz surrounding the Harry Potter films and the huge, huge readership gave it that massive boost and it encouraged people who had never read the books to start reading the books and to come along to see the movies. So when the uh, book readers get all sniffy, that's when sequels don't happen. And I'm not saying that you should say, oh, this was a great film, I want to see a World War Z 2, because I don't want to see a World War Z 2. I'd <laughs> <No>. frankly well <laughs> they didn't, and, and that Fincher wasn't doing a sequel to this. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a straightforward reaction. Ultimately, the fans are sort of the... the uh, Canary down the mine? Canary down the mind, the, the front guard, the, the honor guard, the, the ones who are basically sending out the message to everyone else. So, for example, when DC fanboys start saying that uh, DC will annihilate the Marvel master race, it doesn't make the films more popular. <laughs> no. No. That's, that's, no. No, hang on, hang on, sorry, sorry. The DC Master Race will annihilate Marvel. Oh. That's it. Okay, so, I was yeah, going to say, I really don't I think yes. that's what Marvel are trying to do. No, no. It's the, other, the, the DC fanboys who are specifically using the term Master Race like it's a good thing to be part of that. Mm. Yeah. Not all, fairness, by all means. Mm. Not, I've have only, a book called yeah. The Master Race, but yeah. that's what, not what they were referring to. <laughs> no. uh. yeah. The film starts with the animated intro, and this is so this actually filtered into the Princess Thieves with just the idea of starting in one fashion and then just no, actually let's uh, let's change this around. I, I, it feels like we went to see Lego Batman earlier today. The problem is not that people just want to see movies about a happy little elf. There is a certain type of animated movie that is a very generic template that is being trotted out time and time again. It's not about a happy little elf. It's Despicable Me 3. It's that again and again and again and again. And the boss uh, baby and Storm. Screaming minions. Screaming and Smurfs. And Smurfs 2 and minions uh. and just... Mm. And trolls. And just that same thing over and over again. It's The Happy Little Elf film would not gross any kind of money at no. all. That would be for the and very, very young children. Just on that note, yeah. did you find that handful of trailers that we watched... Beauty and the Beast felt really awkward right in the middle of all of it. It did. Well, all the other kids were going, boo, bah, 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 cookies and farts, and dog sniffing butts. <laughs> and then Beauty and the Beast is going, da, 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 da. Right, did you enjoy that distraction? Back to dog sniffing butts, and farts, and bright orange, and bright pink. Mm-hmm. And Smurfs hitting their heads and going, oh, no, I'm okay. Had... The Whoa. I mean this slightly preceded the two thousand and six explosion of crappy animated movies. But had it really had its finger on the pulse and come out around about that time, it could have made that happy little elf beginning really acerbic. As it is, I really, really like it. Just the idea of, you know, yeah. it's not too late to see a film about a happy little elf. And my personal favourite line, it's not too late to step out of the uh, movie theatre living room or aeroplane this is being screened in. Yes, I love <laughs> yeah. that line. I remember that getting uh, uh, quite a few claps from the audience whenever <laughs> that first happened. 
I uh, chuckles from parents as I'm, well. I'm torn between Lemonies because I love both Jude Law and Patrick Warburton. They both have a very different way of doing it, but mm-hmm. I, 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 I love both their deliveries on on this this prose. So when I, I read The Bad Beginning after seeing the film, I was like, this is really comfortable to read because it feels like the film read, if that makes any sense. This is why I've always been so baffled that lovers of the books are like, oh, they completely changed everything. They didn't really change everything. They changed yes. tone. Yeah. But yeah. the actual it's text is, is mostly there. I mean, they, they, they moved quite a bit of the messing around that happens in the middle of, the, of each book just to one side and in often cases replaced it with a set piece of goofy action. Mm. Uh, like for a question regarding the wide window. Um, that sequence where everything explodes and it goes over the cliff in the film. I don't recall that being so elaborate in the uh, uh, animated, sorry, in the TV show. Was it in the book? No. Uh, no, I no. think what happened was is they found they found Aunt Josephine, Aunt Josephine's uh, <clears throat> broken window, and then they tried to they tried to decipher the letter, and the hurricane was coming in at that point, and gotcha. the, the house was just starting to fall apart. Right. They just barely made it out in time. Right. So the film yeah, was- doing the thing where they basically go through everything that Anne Josephine was terrified of happening, actually happening. That's a conceit for the film, is it? Yes. Yeah. And right. that's actually something I, going back to this, I really did enjoy that. Um, just, I thought it was hilarious. I, I, not hilarious. Yeah. I thought it was pretty funny that they, that especially when they did the the. Doorknob shattering into a yeah, thousand pieces. Yeah, doorknob shattering yeah. into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like the sequence, but I didn't like the fact that they kept saying what, repeating Aunt Josephine's words just before it happened. I'm like, I'm watching and I'm saying, I'm not an idiot as a viewer. I remember her saying it. It happened 15 minutes ago. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Films do sometimes do that thing where they, they kind of lead the audience by the hand a little bit, and some of the audience will inevitably be thinking that really wasn't necessarily. Uh, wasn't necessary, and some of the audience will inevitably be thinking, "What? You just described. Um, <laughs> you just described everything wrong with a series of unfortunate events." On the one hand, he'll be saying, "Don't explain this to me. I already know this. Am I? What am I? Uh, am I a five-year-old?" And then on the, for the next thing, it'll be, "I don't know. I don't get what's going on here mm. because it hasn't been completely and utterly flagged." Mm-hmm. It takes a good filmmaking to strike that balance to make yeah. the original yeah. moment memorable enough that you don't have to refer back to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Side note on the, the Littlest Elf. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm sitting, I'm sitting there, and I'm I haven't I've only seen this movie once before uh, watching it for this, and I'm humming the tune to myself. I'm like, why do I know that? It's the lusty month of May from Cam- from Camelot. Ah. I'm humming it to myself. I'm like, what? If, and I start, and eventually I start lyricing it in my head. Like, okay, that's the lusty month of May. I especially like the uh, moment when the uh, lights go out and the happy, uh, the littlest elf, and its eyes are just they're blinking in the darkness as uh, its yeah. world gets turned into somewhere far more grim. Um, what immediately strikes me then while watching the film is um, Thomas uh, Newman's score, uh, which is. I mean, Thomas Newman, especially in the, the 90s and early 2000s, was just had this, and still has, this incredible, easy-to-listen-to, but sort of magical style. So we've got, like, sort of um, Shawshank Redemption and Finding Nemo and American Beauty and uh, Road to Perdition, just all these, these sort of wonderful yeah. scores. And a Series of Unfortunate Events is one of my favourite of, uh, of his. You know, it's, it's got especially moments of... 
quiet an emotion in amongst the the madcap stuff. That's the stuff that the this film does the best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and just the introduction of the uh, the the orphans. They they lucked out with the casting here because these two the the two elder kids are to me at least really really charismatic and watchable and sort of set the benchmark for for child actors they don't have much to do they've both got this Wednesday Adams thing going on where they don't really show emotion all that much yeah yeah um, which is again why Barry Sonnenfeld would have been uh, quite good for this as well but I don't necessarily think Barry Sonnenfeld would have made this a better film. Although it's possible that it probably wouldn't have had quite so much of the madcap stuff if it had had Dan writing it from from scratch. Yeah, um, more unlikely. But uh, I mean, everyone will know how much uh, Melinda Weissman, the uh, actress who plays Violet in the um, Netflix show, looks uncannily like Emily Browning. Just it's the first thing yeah. that strikes you when you watch that. Yeah. You're like, what? Just, is that? Have they bought? No. Have they shrunk Emily Browning? She's got to be <laughs> I swear, she'd be like 10, 20s, 12 years older by now. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they're, they're, they're so magnetic as kids that um, uh, Liam Aiken uh, as Klaus, that the, the new kids, for me, don't hold a candle to them. They, I mean, they're fine. They're good. I like watching them. But they don't have that quiet... Like super intelligence things sold in the same way. I yeah, I very much felt the same exact thing. But the series, I don't, I don't think there was enough screen time and enough of a emphasis on Violet and Klaus's abil- abilities as children. Nor, nor Sonny's either. I actually like Sonny's actor. Uh, what was it, Hoffman? Yeah, I actually wait, liked Hoffman so much better in the film than I did in. Than series because I I just felt she was actually acting in part of the scenery mm. whereas uh, the it's series Cara and Shelby Hoffman in the film and Presley Smith in the uh, the series I think Sunny is whereas... a lot more CG in the series though yes yeah. yes and that that's one of my problems with the I... with the series too but w- once and again, yeah we'll in the get... film when it cuts to CG Sunny it's like oh god kill it with fire. Ah. I do wonder really because I felt that about the series too. Yeah, I wonder if that had something yeah. to do with the respective ages of Emily Browning and Melinda Weissman actually because Emily Browning seems very sure of herself when she's holding the baby. Mm. Melinda Weissman always seems a little bit hesitant, so I do wonder if a lot of that CG was right. We actually can't give her a real baby at this point because she might drop her. Well, just I mean, if Clint yeah. Eastwood could use a doll in American Sniper, <laughs> give her a sack of potatoes. <laughs> just fix it in post. They did. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> I think, though, the, the the kids in the TV show, they what distinguishes them from the kids in the film for me is that they don't command attention the same way. Mm. In the film, all the focus is on the kids, yeah. and the adults are they're great, but they are background characters. And in in the sense that every huge actor that's there, it feels like a cameo. It doesn't feel like you're really supposed to be paying attention to them. But they have walked into the kids' life exactly. as opposed to there is a series of events going on, the children are involved. That's right. Whereas the TV show, I think because they've had that emphasis on the uh, secret society from the word go and it's it's been 
kind of which made, again I really like as a new way of looking at absolutely. It. But it's it's been yeah. it's made it much more clear that all of these people are involved with their parents in one way or another, and that there's all this mysterious umbrella stuff going on that the kids are only just finding out about. It makes it feel more like the children are a parcel being passed around <clears throat> rather than that they are the driving force of the events. Now I don't know whether that is because they have less charismatic uh, less charismatic actors playing them that's just how it feels or because or be- we've now had those extra books which we didn't have with the film yes um, or because that was the nature of the beast that you know that was the story and so they cast less charismatic actors so that they wouldn't feel as though they were driving it quite mm. so much I don't think you actually, go out of your way to go no no, no not the her she's not she's, she's too charismatic, charismatic. <laughs> no you yeah. want that charisma you want that lightning in a bottle you want people glued to that show mm, yeah. that's so, uh, have a charismatic person and keep them in a, in a support role that's fine mm. it, I actually had the opposite uh, reaction I prefer the series kids ah. um, uh, and part, yeah, same here yeah, part of the reason is that I feel that the kids in the movies are just way too cool I mean, they too cool uh, there's school. a lot of leaning on walls and very rea- very kind of well, that's cool reactions. I would say Liam I I, I can I can't Aiken. pronounce his name. Aiken, Aiken. Aiken. I I would say him not wearing the glasses kind of help, helps with that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah they, they 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 are just way too cool for these miserable kids. Um, and also that um, I feel that in the movie they are basically treated as a unit whereas in the show i'm getting personality individual personalities from them particularly when violet and klaus are disagreeing on things and part of that might be that the movie never got to the miserable miserable mill where that's more of a thing but i liked that they seem like individuals that and Honestly, they, I don't see that much CG in Sunny on the uh, show, yes, when you're not looking at her, but I think that they're good at actually getting reactions out of her. One of the things I couldn't stop laughing at was the look on this little baby actor's actress's face when uh, the subtitle is She's Loony about Aunt Josephine. Mm. And this look was, I don't know whether that was really good CG or <laughs> good directing or just a, just a perfect shot, but... She she was just so... Everything about that face told me everything I needed to know about it. And I get that a lot from the show, is that Baby Sunny is, does a good job of reflecting the viewers. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've, you have got a point there. And I, for me, I liked the way the dynamic um, of how they're looking at their circumstances shifts between them in the series. So you'll get sometimes um, Violet is being relentlessly naive and optimistic. And um, Klaus is feeling really down and, you know, refusing to see that there could possibly be a bright side to this. But then something will change and that dynamic shifts. So now Violet's the one who feels like there's, you know, there's no way out of this particular corner and Klaus is the one who's looking for a way forward. So there's not this constant feeling that their characters are necessarily set, which does feel more true to the idea that they are young kids. Young kids do tend to be much more fluid in terms of how they approach things. Yeah, yeah. 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 And they seem to be learning in the series, whereas the movie they didn't. From Guardian to Guardian, they just sort of went there and did the thing and moved on, and that's partially just because it's kind of a Frankenstein's monster of three books. But in the series, after Uncle Monty, they have just gotten more and more cynical about where they're going next, and they 
you could see them slowly taking charge of their own lives. Mm. Like how whenever Aunt Josephine leaves the house, they immediately light up some candles, cook some stew, and uh, figure out the figure out the plan and break into her safe. Whereas, whereas uh, they don't do anything of the sort in the film. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I really liked that yeah. bit actually. Yeah. And the the kids in the series, to me, I felt they were more authentically emotional. The kids in the movie yeah. felt much more detached. And I'm like, and we never saw them happy. Their range of emotion was... Wednesday Adams. <laughs> yeah. And, and the kids in the series, you know, we get more time with them at the beginning, which it's a series, so you can have more time. Mm-hmm. But you see them happy, and, you know, they're working together and figuring things out. You know, the bit at Briony Beach at the very beginning. And I, I personally like that better. I'm like, I, I care more about these characters. I yeah. feel more invested in them because they feel... And it's over the top, of course, but I still feel they're just that little bit more realistic. uh, In both scenarios, they seem to be um, propelled along by... uh, Well, propelled along by anger and held back by sadness. Uh, And in the uh, series, possibly why it's continuing, that anger seems to be overriding the sadness a little more, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I can see that. Because sadness holds you still, and there there is a lot of that... A lot of that mourning in the film, which... It doesn't quite feel like... Well, that's, again, it's very sharp for me in the film when I, I watch those guys. Like I said, they're extremely intense, and I'm, I'm very impressed by that. It does, like, it does not look like the kids in the series have been hit by a freight train of emotion. But again, that's, you know, they're, they're yeah. showing more... They're being more realistically bouncing back kids from this scenario. Mm. But at the same time, they seem less brilliant as a result for me. Yeah, I think that it does, it, it because it looks so similar, because the aesthetic between the film and the, the show uh, is so similar, I think it makes it that much more acutely obvious, the difference between how a film portrays emotional sense, when it's doing it well, I might add. There are a lot of films out there that that really don't um, and how a TV show, series can uh, portray emotional sense. A TV show? From yeah. the shoe people. <laughs> Siri. You put it on your head. That's ridiculous. Sorry. Sorry, I can't enunciate very well. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't tease. A movie tends to be, by its nature, more intense. It's more exaggerated. It's a, um, a more concentrated shot of the emotions mm. that, that are being put across in the script. They can't take their time as much. Exactly. Whereas a TV series nine times out of ten it will be more spread out it will be more uh, accurate to real life because they've got the time and because they have to be able to sustain their audience over a much longer period you couldn't have the the emotional intensity of a film in a TV series and expect people to keep coming back week after week after week after week. So it's the difference between a rich meal or a week's worth of slightly healthier lunches. Yeah, exactly. You, you <laughs> yeah, yeah. wouldn't sort of give somebody this 
steak with this intense pepper sauce and um, and know, the next day a whole ridiculously partridge ridiculously flavorful <laughs> mustard and cheese mashed potato <laughs> and 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 basically say right now you're going to have this every day for three meals a day well i mean you could change the actual steak and like you know go well this time i've cut it up and put it in a fajita for you well indeed but <laughs> my point being that if you had all that then by the end of it you've got oh, gout so, so. <laughs> now i got the diabetes <laughs> Exactly, and and you know, as a, as the 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 showrunner of a, a TV series, you do not want to give your audience the gout. What you're saying is that a, is that a TV series that's too intense will literally kill you. Maybe it may be so. Yes, that's yeah. why um, Game of Thrones has to occasionally indulge in whimsy. Yeah, and, and I was yeah. just going to say, I think that's one of the reasons that I couldn't carry on with Game of Thrones. Yeah, it was too just, intense. It was too time. intense. Same. Over and over again, and it was just like I can't react to this anymore. I have two choices: either I shut off completely, in which case, why am I bothering watching it, or I don't bother watching it. I got too many examples of like, right, those four things that happened in this episode. I could have taken one of those this series, but yeah, <clears throat> yep, okay. Um, so moving on from the Baudelaire's, because we will come back to them, I'm sure, but just generally their reactions to the support cast, Mister Poe played by Timothy Spall in the film and K. Todd Freeman in the TV show. Complete boob. Complete hapless, like, just... Oh, hang on, I forgot my favourite Sunny line. I was going to say it, but I was patiently waiting for everyone to finish. It's when um, Aunt Josephine says, uh, my husband Ike, he was devoured by leeches. And there's a long pause and Sunny goes, okay. <laughs> 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 it's really excellent comedy. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, Mr. Poe, uh, he is an infuriating character, and I almost want to ask, I, I almost want to, I'm not going to, but I'll tell you what I almost want to ask. Does he remain this much of a complete gimp throughout the next... Don't answer that. <laughs> don't answer it. Oh, Whatever okay. you do, don't answer. Throughout the next nine okay, books. No, no, shh. I could almost guarantee he'll probably get bumped off at some point. No one could be this stupid and constantly come up against Count Olaf. I'm surprised he survived the movie. I I think for me, though, the the difference between the way he's played in the the movie and the series is partly the fault of how they chopped the the books up for the film. Mm, mm. Um, Because ultimately one of the dumbest things that Mr. Poe does is put them back in the custody of Count Olaf. Yeah. After um, the train incident, which was yeah, made up yeah. for the film. Which really mm-hmm. calls into question his ability to, like, see things um, and, there, and be uh, aware. Is there a book called The Awful Orphanage? Because it really feels like at some point <laughs> he's got to take them to someone who to is some not kind connected, of surely. Yeah. And if it... Is there? No. Oh. Okay, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> okay, sorry. It's just a book um, title. Um, yeah. one, of the, <laughs> one of the things that I really like the difference between Mr. Poe in the movie and in the show is that in the show, Mr. Poe seems to actually care about the children, mm. whereas in the movie, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, I would yeah. say it's the other way around. I'd say in, in the in the book in the film, he seems to be kind of fond of the children in a kind of absent-minded way, whereas in the uh, the the book. So in in the in the series, he almost seems like I'm going to take you to another terrible place now, kids. He seems really? more career focused and maybe a little bit distracted in the in the series, which kind of yeah. for me made his. He got distracted by chowder. Yes, I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but for me, that kind of made his uh, his 
naivety and idiocy in certain circumstances a bit more forgivable. <laughs> yeah, my my thing is that um, in the movie I was able to handle him more just because of the compressed time period. Mm. The more Mr. Poe I see, the more I despise him. Mm. Um, and <laughs> all right, so my notes on the series: the first page I have Mr. Poe's delightfully awkward. By page three. Will somebody put, please punch Mr. Poe in the junk repeatedly? <laughs> <laughs> that that is how my notes went on this, and there are such, you can see the layers of me getting more and more frustrated with this character. <laughs> I want to watch uh, season three of Buffy just to see Mr. Trick die because the same actor oh, and yeah. pretend it's Mr. Poe. He was in uh, Gross Point Blank as well, one of my uh, favorite films. Yes. Yeah. Ah, that's where I recognize him from. Yeah. Yeah. It brings me to a, a comment on the difference I see in tone between the movie and the show. And it, to me, and, and it's it's a world, it seems to be a world where the level, the maximum level of intelligence or majority level of intelligence is lower than ours. Yeah. The Baudelaire kids are basically Tony Stark in this world. Yeah, yeah. And in the show and, and I, I see it especially in Count Olaf in the show I feel like the he's yes he's over the top because everything in this is over the top but given the lack of intelligence of of the adults in the show I feel like Count Olaf is being smart enough versus them hmm. that yeah, he, I'm, I get him getting away with things. In the movie, Count Olaf is so over the top, <laughs> and there's so much more contrast, because Jim Carrey, yep. <laughs> there's so much more contrast between him, and he is so over the top, and all of the adults in the movie seem to be brain damaged. <laughs> <laughs> to allow this farce to continue. I, I, I have yes. I have a theory, actually, on, on where this springs from. <laughs> the, what you're saying about the, 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 av- you know, the average level of intelligence in this world seems to be a bit lower than you know, the real world. I don't think it's necessarily intelligent. It, it's, for me, it's kind of representative exactly. of exactly. acknowledging mm. When things are not right, because and especially don't normalise this. this. Well, no, but this is what I mean. Yeah. Because and especially when this is all looked at from from children's point of view, there are circumstances in the real world where basically children are really hard to lie to because they see things mm. and they don't understand yet that for reasons of courtesy or reasons of being polite or reasons of, you know, this is actually sensible for your survival, don't see that. Don't acknowledge that. Pretend that isn't happening. I see nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's an emotional, um, it, it, in its most, most intense form, it can be a... a, a method of emotional abuse that children see things going on that their parents tell them in you know not so many words to ignore to pretend aren't happening and that's basically what's happening throughout this whole story Mm -hmm. is that the children are seeing terrible terrible things Mm -hmm. and the adults around them just don't and 
if you if maybe if you told that story from the adult's perspective, it would be, well, we see it, but we don't really have any choice in this matter. Like, so maybe from Mr. Poe's perspective, well, I can see that clearly... Count Olaf is not a suitable person for these kids to live with. No, but the no, law says no, this, they have no, to. no. Ethically speaking, no. <laughs> like you need to see that conflict, otherwise it's bullshit. No, th- 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 this is why this right now is so sharp because there is a division now between people who are going. This is fine about the world as it burns down around their ears. Absolutely. And people who are going, but, do you not see this? Right, but you are Ah, uh, you're just making a fuss about nothing. But you are not telling me that there isn't also a contingent of people in the world who are sat there with the slightly disquieting thought that something's not quite right, but that they also shouldn't say anything about it because they don't Fuck want to stir those things. people! And they don't want to make waves. <laughs> and they don't think it's their place to object. There are those people in, oh, yeah, the, I in know. this world. I don't, want I, think, I don't want them in my entertainment. No, I understand they are that. irrelevant. I understand that. But I think that that is the tone that I get for the, the kind of metaphorical theme. Unless of your story. story is about stop ignoring it. If your story is about stop ignoring it, and there, then Mr. Poe comes through and goes, Count Olaf, and punches him in the face. I will not see you near these children anymore. Well, no, that would the, be like, you know, I will story, not stand by and let this farce of legality continue. No, but the story is about the kids don't ignore it. The kids don't sit there and go, oh, OK, we'll just believe whatever the adults tell us. I the know. kids are resolute and determined and will uncover this no matter what. And there are adults that clearly want to see things, hence the spyglass. It's a visual Bingo. representation. Yeah. I think it works best in Bad Beginning just because, um, quite frankly, Olaf does a good job of making it clear that these are just spoiled rich kids in a new situation. And when they try to explain what's wrong, the way they go about it does sound like they are exaggerating for the perp because they're spoiled and they don't expect to actually contribute mm, yeah. like real kids. Um, it gets more ridiculous as the series goes on, but in Bad Beginning, I absolutely believe that this is, you know, Olaf has managed to convince everybody around him that these are spoiled kids to discredit anything they might say. Yeah, and I mean, I can tell yeah. you, even children who aren't particularly spoiled can overdramatically imply that you are <laughs> treating them like Cinderella when you ask them to tidy their room. <laughs> I had a speech Not there about any names. I'm so unlucky. And I was like, right, we're going to sit down and watch a little film called Schindler's List. Then you oh. tell me how unlucky you are. <laughs> oh boy. Right? I don't think I've ever actually dropped a, something so horrible into conversation. I didn't actually say that to her. Not a beast. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but actually, this does tie in with it, and I kind of need you guys to not answer me on this. Um, it is apparent from watching the first four uh, um, books play out and from watching the film that there are two secret societies at work, the Society of the Spyglass and the Society of the Eye. This, uh, there, one side starts fires, the other side puts them out. What I don't get is that Count Olaf and his cronies are idiots. They are bumbling buffoons. Even in the books, like, you know, these insidious, like the, the man with two hooks for hands. How does he even function? The, the two white-faced women, the man of, the person of indiscriminate gender, indeterminate, indeterminate gender, gender uh, and the yeah. bald man, who's probably the smartest of all of them. And they're, le- they're led by Count Olaf. How does this happen? How, how do these guys outwit the, the 
the Spyglass Society, who, aside from being a little bit scatty in the case of Uncle Monty and a little bit frightened in the case of uh, Aunt Josephine... Jo- jo- Josephine, yeah. Yeah. Are really sharp and on the ball. How do you get the jump on them? How did they apparently burn down half of their houses and kill their families in the case of Uncle Mon- Monty? Yeah, the VFD is presented so inconsistently. Sometimes okay, they're right, super on, spies. Are the VFD the good guy? Oh, the, the, they're the good guys with the spy glasses. They're the okay. good guys, yeah. Right. Um, sometimes they're they the good spy guys. Glasses. And sometimes they are. Sometimes they are like super spies, and sometimes they are completely incompetent. Like, are you Shield or are you Derek Flint? Hmm. Are you Austin Powers? I mean, what what's going on here? I don't know what they want to do are with you this. Shield and... or are you Austin Powers? <laughs> <laughs> that well? is quite a division. Yes. I mean, I don't really want to call that a weakness because, again, it's a black comedy. But if that's the case. Treat it as a black comedy. The next person saying that these books are deadly serious, I'm going to reel off a bullet-pointed list of every time the B- VFD behaved like bumbling fools. But every time, again, these the the Eye Society do something so man, like it requires the people around them to be gormless. It doesn't seem like the VFD are taking the fight to them. It's sustaining, you know, an obviously dire situation of this this weird kind of stalemate of the, the Order of the Phoenix being taken out by the Death Eaters, but in this kind of bumbling way rather than in a... In a uh, like, Harry Potter's... Like, Harry Potter may have, like, some, you know, hilarious, like, Merlin's pants and farting, puking pastels-style um, gags in there, but the, the actual... The deaths are handled with extreme... Seriousness. Mm-hmm. I I want to comment since since you did mention Trump. Did it strike anyone else that there is an awful lot of Trump and Count Olaf in the series? It did seem like they'd ramp that up. Say, a bit, yeah. It sure felt like that to me. It was being filmed around the time that he that he was campaigning, so it, it wrapped in August of last year when it was still off off the table as to what would actually happen. Hmm this streak of um, I'm completely obsessed with myself, the entire world must do uh, what I want them to and must, when they're not doing what I want them to, at least be watching me at all times is quite a common quality mm. for um, villains to have. Both of them as well have in common that, that what what do you want? Like, you know, you have What's a, your end game? You have a mansion, <laughs> you have cronies what could you possibly get from the Baudelaire fortune? The, like what? What do you want? You want to live in more yeah. luxury? Just steal a house, kill the owner. I mean, you are not a bit above killing people. Just do it. Just turn up, knock on the door. I like your house, and then just burst in, kill them, and then that's it. Just bury them in the back garden, and you got a new house, Count Olaf. I, I get the impression. Job done. I do get the impression with the series um, that I didn't get so much with the film that it is much more personal than that. That this is something that he's actually been plotting for quite some time. I will yeah. have the fortune. <laughs> But yeah, okay, that I would understand if, if, it, if it's more than just I want the fortune. Because I, I do wonder, what the hell could you possibly get? Better digs, repair your house. Nice wallpaper. Get weighted on hand and foot like the... New costumes. The, the, the crazed emperor <laughs> yes. you want to be. Maybe fund some more plays. Mm. But you don't well, need I, that much money for that. Well, I think, I think part of it is, yes, he has this house, but the house is clearly in not great repair. Oh, yeah, yeah. And... Nobody knows who he is, and I think I think you may have hit on it, Alex. I think 
that yes, he wants to, he wants to turn this into a you know an amazing, probably gold covered mansion, mm. and, and the world on, shall know my name. Yeah, put <laughs> on these plays, and you know, pay probably pay people to come. Something yeah. so everybody knows who Count Olaf is. Yeah, that and I could get needs, as an end game. Yeah. I, I think I think he he wants a sheen of respectability on it, at least to the wider world. <laughs> so I think he's trying to become the Baudelaire's guardian as a way of this money is legally in I'm making air quotes legally his, so he can look like in his mind he can be respectable. Oh, I think. Yeah. The, just the hits keep on coming. Sheen of respectability, <laughs> gold sharpie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't say anything about mattresses in the show, but well. Oh God. <laughs> this is a man who, on hearing, uh, I think it was said in a newspaper or possibly a news anchor, mentioned that his hands were really small. He would send him every week like photos of his hands with the fingers circled and then written in gold sharpie not so small like uh, at what point he, will you be happy he he clearly stopped his emotional growth at about eight maybe less clearly now that you've mentioned talking about Count Olaf right <laughs> yes. now that, now that I, actually, actually, I actually want to know more about Count Olaf's childhood and his upbringing you know that's keeping him shrouded in mystery um, you can spoil if that doesn't happen so I can stop looking forward to it okay so I haven't read mm-hmm. these books but there is another Lemony Snicket series um, hang on let me see if I can find what it's called mm-hmm. Uh, um, it is called All the Wrong Questions. Uh, and it, uh... <clears throat> it, it, uh... <clears throat> it takes place before the books, and that's all I can say. Because I looked at the Wikipedia page, and there's spoilers. <laughs> so basically... <laughs> Thank you. If you folks at home, um, keep checking the Kindle store every now and then. I picked up, uh, the complete set for, I think, five ninety nine. Um... Then they rocketed back up to sixty-five pounds. Oh, oh wow! That's surprising. Well that was like wow. on the the day that the Netflix series was announced. So the next time they're rumbling about series two, check Kindle quick. All right. So uh, Justice Strauss, play, played by Catherine O'Hara in the uh, movie, who, by the way, is the only refugee from the movie to make it into the series. Yeah. Um, yes, she was as... criminally underused in the movie. I was so oh, yeah. excited to see her in the series. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I adore her. Oh yeah, I love love Catherine O'Hara. She's um she's wonderful. Um and uh, she played by Joan Cusack in the series in in a way that seems very much based on O'Hara's performance in this kind of you know very prim, very well meaning. Like they are immediately confronted with the kind of woman who would definitely be a great um you know maybe not the most fun person to look after them, but someone who clearly has a, a space in her life for children. She's got a library. Mm-hmm. That's a start. Unfortunately, yeah. they, they would had they gone to live with her, they would have been across the street from Count Olaf and the perfect place for him to pr- 
prey upon them. This is one of those kind of just designed to uh, infuriate you in terms of how you know ideal the setup would be, but also uh, how ridiculously naive she is. She she's one of the prime cases of people where it's like, can you not see what a villain this man is? Yeah, and the answer, of course, is no, because she's an adult, and adults get lobotomies, I guess, at age 18 or something in this universe. Justice is blind. And stupid. Um, I'm I'm glad that she has more of a part in the series, because I remember as I'm watching the series, I see Joan Cusick, I'm like, what is with putting really talented actresses into this tiny part? Mm. But then, of course, as they go on, she actually had lines and... A bit he of was there for more arc. than two scenes. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a bit of a character arc. It's, I think it's a little weird that she's, you know, a, a highly accomplished judge who really just wants babies because woman, I guess. Yeah, That's, that was a little. Yeah, you can't have book babies. I'm like, really? I'm like, a, sure you can. Write them yourself. Uh, but B, what? I, I just want to be an actress and a mother. Uncle Monty, uh, played by Billy Connolly in the film, and Asif Mandvi in the uh, TV show. Again, this is uh, a close one for me, because I, re- I, I, although I do still hold this, oh yeah, so you went to the library, how many scrolls did you find about Asif Mandvi um, from The Last Airbender? But, yeah. uh, but his, his version of Monty, I liked the, the way that it was considerably different to uh, Connolly, despite the fact that he shares the same oversights and weaknesses. But uh, Billy Connolly's just the, the lovely um, way he sings that song, the, yes. the incredibly, uh, you know, and yeah. playing that little, um, what's it called? I want to say zither. Zither, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just obviously that's that's something Billy Connolly can really do. They just sort of added that as flavor to the character. And uh, his, uh, his the, the sweet reminiscing about his family and um, the, the gentleness and the care that he uh, pay, pays to the animals, that comes across really, really strongly at that section of the film. And the lighting and the colours of the film suddenly go up because the children are taken out of this horrible place and suddenly taken to somewhere vibrant and alive. And Uncle Monty's costume, when, when uh, he says we're going to Peru tomorrow and then adjusts his jacket and Klaus spots the spyglass, that waistcoat he's wearing, that is like... That is exactly the kind of costume I, I, I ask Antonio to draw for my new century characters. That's a <laughs> sumptuous, slightly steampunky, sort of Victorian eccentric looking thing. But like you, when you say Victorian, you think sort of drab black uh, clothes. But, you know, there are just so many beautiful colors and textures that in those fabrics, uh-huh. which never come across in Victorian photographs because everything was, of course, all just this horrible sepia. black and white or sepia. Black and white. Yeah. So you, uh, to, to be able to realize that era, um, it just it made that section of the film feel lovely and the, 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 the light in there. And then, of course, when Stefano turns up, everything gets, gets more sinister. But um, yeah. uh, just the... The unfairness of having Uncle Monty taken out, murdered in his sleep. And just, I don't even think it was his sleep, actually. Oh God, he struggled. I think he was attacked. Oh Christ! In the yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. in the in the movie, yeah, the movie, yeah, uh, he was attacked. In, yeah. Well, in the uh, in the series, it was like a, a very was this in the book the the dili- the, the sort of the the venom dispensing system that, that yes, they put yes, together. Yes, yes, uh, right. Count Olaf had had a needle in his. Uh, 
in his luggage, and he and he dispensed it to Uncle, uh, Uncle Monty while More he. Than, okay. Well, in, in the in the uh, show, it was like this elaborate steampunky like double needle thing that made it look like snake fangs. Mm. Yes, and and in the book, I believe it was just a single single right. syringe. Okay. But uh, in the uh, film, they don't even tell you that. It's actually it's it's far scarier that Amonti's alive and sleeping while the shadows creeping up on him in the night, and then dead as a doornail in the morning. It's like, oh my god, what happened? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, one thing I noticed about the series is the first episode in any story arc is uh, colored brighter than the second. Ah, yeah. e- each time, particularly. Most especially in the reptile room, but it's present in um, all the rest of them as well. Hmm. That the second episode is always duller and more Snydery. Hmm. One <laughs> thing they seem to be doing with the Snydery uh, with the the <laughs> set and the costumes yeah. in the reptile room, though. For me, anyway. especially since Zack Snyder directed Sucker Punch with Emily Browning. If you want to see Violet get sleezed on, Sucker Punch. Mm. And then there's also a film she was in, Sleeping Beauty. Just the concept of it makes me feel ill. I'm not even going to describe it. Google it, folks. Continue, shows. Uh, And Emily Browning's sack your agent. Yeah, what the Uh, hell, Emily Browning? You need Jai Courtney's agent. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, that guy can get you in everything. He gets Jai Courtney all these horribly undeserved roles. In a largely bad movies, but you know, sometimes he gets Jai Courtney put in good movies so that he can make them worse. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, the set design and the costumes in the reptile room for me felt in the the film segment felt very hobbity. Yeah. Um, Monty's house, if you look at the way it's structured inside, it's almost a hobbit hole. Apart mm. from the fact that the reptile room itself has glass panels in the ceiling, everything's curved archways and round corridors and everything leads into this sort of central hub of a dining room where everything's this warm wood and soft candlelight and it, it just feels like it's structured very deliberately to be as cosy and comfortable and accepting as possible, which makes it all the more painful when it's taken away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I despise right angles just as a rule. So <laughs> I love, uh, I love Monty's house. I noticed that how everything was curved as well. And that's kind of, I like that particular architecture and it made me feel more comfortable in it when I was watching. Mm. Although also it's snake shaped. Yeah, everything's circular and, and bendy, and um, it, of course, it comes hot on the heels of the discussion of sanctuary and the idea that snakes retreat to sanctuaries when they're feeling threatened, and that's mm-hmm. what they're trying to do at this point. Mm. Yeah. Also, did you notice that Monty is thus far the only uh, character in either the series or the movie who doesn't assume the kids don't know what a big word is? He asks them if they know what it means. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. I can't remember which one he said. He said some word, and he asked them, do you know what that means in both cases? And I'm like, there we go. And he's literally the only person who does that. I was, by the way, impressed with the uh, um, the diversity in the uh, TV series, the amount of people of color that get put in, and it never gets mentioned. It's, you know, uh, our Aunt Josephine's person of color, uh, Uncle Monty, person of color. Um, Mr. Poe. Uh, Mr. Yeah, Poe, Mr. person Poe. of color, yeah. Uh, and it's just more of that, please. Just, uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, mm-hmm. just to break up the whiteness. Yeah. Also, Another... queer people. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. queer people. Oh, it's so good to see. Oh yeah, yeah. That that was something I never got until the show. Probably just because I was too young to even think about stuff like that. But how is it worded I, in the I, book? Because it uh, uh, the way Patrick uh, Warburton it, it wasn't. Says it. He says I remember it can be taken in one of in multiple ways. So, Devin, um, I don't know if you remember this, but I think there was a an introduction, or no, one of the dedication pages that was like. When C realizes S is bad for him, I'll be together with you again, but that'll never happen. It was it was something like that, and that's the only kind of reverence that I can remember to them having a relationship. I wouldn't uh. be surprised if Daniel Handler, who is a queer writer, intended that and might not have uh, either his publisher or could not have felt that he could get away with it in the early 2000s, whereas... Oh. Yeah, he can get away with it now. Yeah, and actually, you know, I, you know, make it fairly explicit. Yeah, I'm sure that's what happened. I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah, um, one of the things that since Handler is also writing the series, um, I saw somewhere that somebody was suggesting that in many ways this is a reboot where Handler can retell the series the way he wants to because certain things like the VFD uh, and all that yeah. he added in later were not intended originally he added in later and he wishes that he could go back and kind of redo it nice right. so the so early stories are possibly a little bit more blended yeah than they were in the books yeah. okay yeah because the um the, the vfd stuff like the stuff with jacqueline and, and like that was never in the uh, books yeah it was not in the books at all it was completely added and they'll Jacqueline's they will a whole come new up character for example really so yeah. jacqueline was never there yeah, she was. Oh, never she's great. I want. I want to see what much more of her. Yeah. I did wonder actually in uh, the reptile room because uh, Gustav, who is uh, Monty's assistant, mm. is part of the society, isn't he? In the yeah. um, in the series, whereas in the film, I mean, you never even see him. Yeah, so. you do. He gets tied yeah. to the front and of the And in the book, and oh, in the book, it's, yes, it's pretty much like yeah. the film. Mm. You know, he gets a one line. Oh, he's you know, he's gone. Yeah, he, yeah, he he got Monty got a retirement notice from him. I from am him. Uh, an Italian man. The, uh, you know what? <laughs> uh, I actually find Jim Carrey much funnier when he's being at Count Olaf in disguise. Captain Sham, the whole you know, could you love a man with a face like a hen's arse? It's uh, like that was the time when he was improvising some of the most, uh, and uh, just the uh, uh, I, I am. They used to call me Old MacDonald because of uh, how I could uh, milk a snake. Uh, but the little others, yeah. Uh, most of that stuff was just improvised when he was standing there in costume while they were like, you know, seeing how it looked in the light, and he just sort of like commits stuff away to memory. Like that was good, that got him laughing, and just sort of throw that into conversation when he was, you know, turning up to play these awful roles. He, uh, yeah. I, it, you know, he's annoying, but he's good. Like it's yeah. it, it's not just that Jim Carrey is annoying, and there's like some films, liar liar, he is bloody annoying in that film. But it's one of my favorite of his comedies. Ace Ventura is now unwatchable. The Mask is great. You know, it's it swings and roundabouts. Yeah. Like I said, yeah, it, there it, seems to be a direct parallel between how much of this movie is he actually obliged to be just a person. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind will always be a great dramatic movie. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 One of the things with Carrie's performance is that I didn't get any menace from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was he was very he was very silly and fun, and I could enjoy that. But when I watch uh, Neil Patrick Harris's performance, I can see why Olaf might be terrifying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he has a, he has a lot of menace, a lot of maliciousness to the way that he performs things, even when he's being silly. And when he smacked Klaus around in the big and the uh, bad beginning, mm. that looked. I I was well well done Netflix on not pulling back from that. That literally I not think, pulling their punches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that really made me feel like, wow, this guy is. That and the fact that NPH's Olaf is a lot more pedophilic. Ew. Um, I didn't get that, but okay. Yeah. I can touch anything I want. Oh, now I'm never it, yeah. not going to get it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, huh. and NPH can turn on a dime. Like, he can go from he can go from being a little ridiculous and showman and just go and flip and become menacing instantly mm-hmm. and switch it back. And it it's also unpredictable. That's another thing that makes him more menacing, I think. Yeah, terrifying, really. Yeah. Oh, I did yeah, find... I really I really liked when he um as Stefano had his like knife from Stefano into Count Olaf talking to the children. Um particularly when he was threatening Sonny with the knife. That was uh-huh. I really liked that. Yeah. yeah. You, you liked you liked that? <laughs> I liked it I liked it in terms of what we were talking No. Um <laughs> No, I liked it in terms of how menacing... You like the yes, you like- there we go. I just wanted to see you tap dance when I uh, said you liked seeing a baby threatened with a knife. It's, a, it's an odd thing to have to defend. Um, Tyler's secretly a monster. <laughs> the, uh, I, there is one, like, basically the Stefano bits with the knife are, like, uh, um, with Jim Carrey in the reptile room. When he first forces his way through the door with it... That is scary to me. When he's yeah. sitting out in the, the hallway and you, he's out of fo- the, the blurriness and being out of focus, yeah. and you can just see the shine of the knife. Klaus starts to exit the room. Do you have a hall pass? A hall and then pass. he goes back in, and it's like there's a guy outside with a knife. He may or may not come into your room and stab you. And then when you wake up in the morning and your foot misses that extra step, oh. it's um that that is chilling. That that's, Very, that's yeah. more memorable to me than anything NPH did that was scary. In fact, um, one of the problems is I've seen this film a dozen times now since 2004, and I've seen these Netflix series once. I can't really remember anything that the Netflix series did unless it was very different from the film. That was different. One of its weaknesses is being so similar to the film that when I first started watching it, I was like... I kind of wish they'd started on book four here because it's so close that they may as well just have started on book four and carried on. But then when I started seeing all of the new stuff that they had added and and the you know the, the reorganizing of it, and I completely understand that an author's uh, prerogative to uh, give it a do-over. And as long as it finishes, that was a sweet move. That was the right thing to do. But it just it feels like you know this season all we get is one new book's worth of stuff which is the first new thing we've had since 2004, unless you want to sit down and Mm -hmm. read the books. And unfortunately, the way that I read is, I start reading, my brain goes, nope, you're now sleeping. It's (laughs) it's weird. Uh, I I have this weird soporific effect having uh, words go by me. This is why I don't just produce what I uh, write as books, because I need it to be alive in my head. Partly the reason I'm doing them as audio dramas is for me. Just so I can feel like they have that extra level of engagement and vibrancy. And for the you know few people out there who also love audio dramas. 
Uh, just one note, and this is... Uh, well, for, actually two notes. Uh, one of them, who here would actually like to watch zombies in the snow other than me? <laughs> zombies? Oh, oh, yes. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yes. The yes. secret yeah. play. Yeah. Or secret yes. movie. Yes. Because I totally would just watch that. You know, with the subtitles and everything, I'd be I would be happy to watch that movie. Um, well, but the I, other thing is, oh, sorry, go on. Well, no, I was just going to say I have quite happily watched Plan Nine from Outer Space more than once, mm. and it doesn't look wildly <laughs> different from that. Mm. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that uh, the ship that they were supposed to get um, uh, to to go to Peru on has got to be one of the worst ship names ever. It's the SS Prospero. I'm like that's so a just terrible asking name for a tempest. Yeah, that, that's like naming your spaceship Icarus. Ah, twice. thank you, you were there. <laughs> I was going to say, well, that's, yeah. And uh, yeah. they had it. Nice the name's so nice, they used it twice and then wished they had it. We're going to call our spaceship Titanic 2. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, actually, now that we're, uh, we're at the what's it, Lake Lacrimos. Uh, and, uh, and the wide window? Uh, yeah, a wide window in Aunt Josephine. Sorry, sorry. can I just interject something really quickly yeah, before go we go to the wide window? Mm-hmm. Um, something neither Karu nor I realized was Asif Monvi, who plays Uncle Monty in the series. Yeah. How, how old do you think he is? Maybe, and if everybody knows that, maybe this, you know, everybody is aware of this, but how old do you think he is? 62. I would have put him probably about mid to late 40s now I'll yeah, say 35 he was born in 1966 so he's 50 or, he's, yeah, he's 50 yeah he yeah. does not look 50 something no it, I, I say it's because he's a firebender yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it blew my mind because I've been a well not as much now with John Stewart gone but I was a I, I was a Daily Show fan for years yeah, yeah. when he was was a correspondent, and it blew me away because I thought the guy was maybe forty at the absolute most. Mm. So that that I felt the need to mention that because I was like, "What?" Because yeah. <laughs> you have that moment of Uncle Monty should be older, right? Mm. Yeah. No, uh, no, no, that's about right. Yeah. There's a youthful energy to him. Yeah. See, I yeah. was I was only thinking late forties because I would have put him at about maybe thirty-five when he was in Spider-Man. Yeah, he was Peter Parker's uh-huh. boss, the pizza delivery guy. Um, uh, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, yeah. 2, yeah. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. His version of Monty is a lot sharper than Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly's version is so trusting and so sweet uh, that the, the idea of him going to the, the uh, cinema and, and code cracking whilst he was there, it just doesn't really, like... That, was that bit in the book? I assume it was. Mm, uh, no, I don't think the movie was in the book, though it, it has been a while. Okay. They they reference they reference going to see zombies in the snow, um, but they didn't like there was no secret message. Oh. Yes, there was yes the that's Jack yeah. stuff then. So it's uh, yeah, that, like, yeah. I really like that because it it makes um, again it makes it feel like they're connected to something bigger. It makes it. Um, I've just realised that Jekyllin is Tariel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the. Monty feels very isolated in the film and by going to live with him the children, they become more connected to him but they don't become more connected to the rest of the world whereas it feels in in the series like this is their step back into the world after coming out of the the grieving process. Yeah, good point. 
Well, and um, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, the guys who have read read all the books, but the VFD doesn't come in to the books at all until, what did you say, mentioned in book five and more fleshed out in book seven? So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been in the reptile room at all. No. In, in, they, the, books, like they were, in the books. They, yeah. They, um, all the VFD stuff, all the Jacqueline stuff is completely new. Um, right. And uh, speaking of, I just I, I like to imagine Jacqueline saying, "Okay, we have to get a secret message to Monty. Let's make an entire movie." <laughs> yeah. In all fairness, it wasn't a very good movie. <laughs> that does fit with her character, though. I think because if you if you look at the way she puts herself across, she is one of those relentlessly hardworking women who just does and does and does and does and does and doesn't stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, yeah, she spent I mean, she's on as a statue during the yeah. reptile room. Yeah, like three days, yeah. something there's, like that. Yeah. Oh, I want to say something, but uh, never yeah. mind. Which again, this is like it's this level of dedication that I cannot see someone like that letting. Like, I why doesn't she just take a, a mini crossbow and hunt down Count Olaf? Job done. There was yeah. that great scene on the on the Prospero though. Hmm. Yeah, which I almost yeah. harpooned him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, she's prepared to kill him. So, why is... Yeah, she should be hunting just, him across the world. Just pull the trigger. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so, uh, Aunt Josephine, played by Meryl Streep and Alfred Woodard. Um, Fuck Aunt Josephine. <laughs> yeah, God, I hate that character. <laughs> she does... Okay, Sorry. right. Uh, especially in the film, she gives Again. up those kids. Like, yeah. Like, she's like, yeah. oh, you can have the children. And you're like, Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, in 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 the in the show, I'm willing to give her a little bit more credit, but in the film, she is a dangerous lunatic from <laughs> the get go. Yeah. The the difference between her and Olaf is maliciousness. That's it. Otherwise, yeah. they are equally bad for these kids. And oh, I I, I want to strangle that character, especially after Uncle Monty. I, I think, like, in, in all seriousness, um, there there is a major difference in that Olaf demands that the kids do a lot of things. Josephine demands that the kids don't do a lot of things. Fair. Mm-hmm. There's the major difference. But, you know, she says it's for their protection, and she does seem to care about them, but in this awful, like, you know, I, I'm just so worried about just bad things happening. It's you know, She stands as the um, a perfect example of a sort of a parable you can tell the children about. If you worry about things too much, terrible things will happen anyway, and you won't be prepared for them. You'll wind up like Aunt Josephine. Well, it's that thing about, um, you know, worrying is... As effective as uh, trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. And also the fact that the the things that actually cause you harm will be the things that you never expected. The stuff that you endlessly worry about will never actually happen. The things that never cross your troubled mind that blindside you on some idle Tuesday. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is, for the sunscreen song. Yay! Which is why <laughs> everything that she's worried about suddenly happening in the film is a weird twist on that. Where it's like, you know what? Aunt Josephine had a point. All this stuff yeah, is totally so. possible. One th- another thing I like about the show one, and this is just a personal thing, is that she has. It's only one line, but she praises the Oxford comma and. As an English major, I am right behind that. I'm kind of all the way. <laughs> that and the whole figuratively and literally thing that really needs to yes. be hammered in today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, and uh, speaking of, of that, I really... I love the part where um, Gustav and Jacqueline extend their spy glasses and then, like, Gustav hits it, hits his spy glass on his hand like he's going to beat up Count Olaf with the spy glass. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, what, it's like, a subtle thing, but it really works. Use it like a roll of quarters. Uh, in general, the wordplay is kind of, I think, what makes this makes the series so very good. Mm. And uh, what some of the best parts of the movie are when Jude Law gets to use some of the wordplay as well. Yeah. But yeah. I think the series just has more time to develop that and work with it. It is a series of books that if kids actually devour, will inc- will literally... Ah, literally <laughs> increase their word power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened to me as a child. Nice. Same here. Is that... I started using fancy words, and people were all like, "What? What is this child?" <laughs> people <laughs> called, started calling you "dooted up" and uh, all fancified. Mm. Exactly, I sympathize. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in talking about how Aunt Josephine, um, and you know, Aunt Josephine's proven right. Mm. It, it makes me think that you know, in in, in you know, our world, you know, the, the common saying is, "If anything good can happen, it will." And my, I'm like in the in the series of unfortunate events world. If anything bad can happen, it will. Really, so I, that's a yes. phrase in this world. If anything good can happen, it will. I've never heard that before. I have only heard literally the opposite, which is um, Murphy's Law. What can? No, no, no. Murphy's Law is what can happen will happen. Okay. It's irrelevant whether it's good or bad. Okay. But I have heard people say, like, the phrase, if anything bad can happen, it will. Right. They're not Murphy's Law. Sod's Law. law. (laughs) (laughs) It's very big in England. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Sod's Law is the So what's the opposite of Sod's Law, where if if it's good, it'll happen? Well, Sod's Law is if you drop a piece of toast with butter on it... It's going to land butter butter side down. 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 That's only if the devil's nearby, um, according (laughs) to... Really? Oh, okay. See, I have always wanted to test this theory, um, wherein uh, a cat will always land on its feet and toast will always land butter side down. You strap a piece of toast with butter to the back of a cat, toss it into the air, you have created a perpetual motion machine wherein this cat will spin forever, permanently, trying to hit both its feet and the butter. And the cat's not going to like it at all. But eventually it might spin so fast it'll go supernova. So... I could so create I know, a black hole. I would like a petrol mimosa machine if we could do that. <laughs> uh, or Schrodinger's toast. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, what's this opposite of anti-Sod's law? I really need to know about this rule because it's so sunny. It's a, a propo- I, I shouldn't say it's a, not so much a common saying as it's a, it's a common saying with certain types of eternally optimistic people. Pollyannas. Yes. Yeah, that they will say if anything good can happen, it will. Wow. And they believe that? <laughs> I think there are some people that do. An optimist Not- looks at half a pint of milk and says, it is half full. A pessimist looks at half a pint of milk. He says, it is half empty. I see half a pint of milk. I say it is sour. <laughs> <laughs> So which which area of America do I have to go and live? Wherein people are just—is uh, it like Mormon country? No, no, it's 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 a it's Orlando right here near Disney World. Wow, obviously the Magic Kingdom. Yes. Okay. We have a couple of kingdoms here, but yeah. This might seem like we're getting off the point, but it really is down to the um the, the philosophy of the books, wherein it is just bad, bad, bad. Is it, does it go from bad to worse? Yes. 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 Very much so. I mean, there's so much like just losing your parents and losing your life uh, that that you had is such a terrible thing to start with that it's almost like you know 
the just lying down while you're being kicked at that stage. It becomes like the uh, the electrocuted dog experiments, where eventually yeah. it's like, if I go and stand over here, no, I get electrocuted. How about if I go and stand, no, I get electrocuted. So the dog just lies down and continues getting shocked. The fact that the Baudelaire orphans continue all onwards through this Sisyphean ordeal is, I suppose, testament to their um, resolve. Willpower. And willpower, yeah. Yeah, you would think yeah. that kids that actually went through even the stuff that happens in the show, mm. not even, you know, taking into account the later books, I'm like, those kids are psychologically scarred for yeah. several lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah, any one of these scenarios is like uh, it, it, it would turn your life around levels of trauma. I mean, for no, another reason, they, they in the third one they watch their aunt get eaten alive by leeches. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. Who specifically just sold them down the river? Oh, that might actually where there's help. less leeches, fewer leeches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we should be really sad about this, but she just she proved just... herself completely ineffectual and uh, defending us. So, but they did I... say uh, that it did say in the uh, series that uh, their last thought here was, "I hope jo- Aunt Josephine is all right," which is a weird thing to think when you're watching the boiling water and they're shrieking eels. Um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't the only one who made that connection. Thank yeah. you. Also, in the film, is the, the boat that Count Olaf's in when he goes, hello, hello, and comes out of the uh, um, the giant tank at the end, um, of, uh, <laughs> the giant water tank, uh, expensive shot, totally worth it, uh, was uh, was that one of the like the boats that Indiana Jones drives around Venice in in uh, the uh, Last Crusade? It seems like that kind of boat. Um, I, I was having trouble telling. It was really dark. Another well, thing. Now, now I can't wait for all the series of unfortunate events, Indiana Jones and Multiverse. Well, those. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the um, I, I can't wait for Count Olaf to drink from the wrong grail. Oh, because <laughs> he would. You know, he would. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> the uh, but, but another of the things that we noticed uh, about the sets, which they don't even, they do not even do this anymore. Uh, the two thousand four movie is matte paintings. They, um, like I said, this is sort of combines to sort of make everything seem very theatrical, but they have these beautiful, gorgeous sort of painted backgrounds that you're not even really supposed to look at, but are just there to add a sense of, uh, not even scale, but enclosed uh, texture to the world, just in the, in the outside of the, of the frames. I love matte mm-hmm. paintings. I remember seeing quite a few of those at the beginning of the movie in Count Olaf's house. Yeah, and it really gave off uh, gave off what his character was, in my opinion. And I wonder why that is that I love them so much. If you look at um, the Goblin Town in uh, um, The Hobbit, um, it is basically a digital version of a matte painting. They put all of this effort into painting this with computers, and it's not like it has just been easy to put together. That is hard, hard work. And then you look at the uh, um, box storeroom at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you can see these painted boxes just sort of, you know, stretching on. And it just, it's like, it's almost as amazing as if they'd really got that. It's more amazing that uh, uh, Ralph McQuarrie or whoever it was that drew that matte painting um, managed to make it look so vividly evocative. It's more amazing than if they really did stack that many boxes up. Yeah. I do wonder why that is. Well, just that the idea of, of painting and and making 
the actual sculpts of the and, and the, the, the the models and having them appear on the film are always going to get more respect with a certain generation than um, CG. That's just uh, I've had this musing before, but um, I'm only mentioning it here because of the map paintings, which is now a lost art. I don't even I think they do them anymore. I remember very clearly uh, Roger Ebert's review of The Three Amigos. Mm. He's talking about the matte painting in the background of the one musical sequence in the middle of the movie. Yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah, One of the things he was saying was that he kind of wished the whole movie had that to better parody what they are parodying. Mm. Because, you know, the movies that they're parodying would have been primarily these matte paintings in the background. Yeah. And even though he didn't much like the movie itself, he loved that sequence largely because of that matte painting in the background. I long ago learned to take everything Roger Ebert said with a pinch of salt. I agree with him on the paintings. Obviously, but how yeah. did you not like Three Amigos? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but and instead like Popeye. I he he's what? not perfect, but he loved Popeye for the production design. Dude, new films that I I do like reading uh, what he had to say, I, even if I don't agree with him. Same as Mark Comer, I suppose. Yeah. Both old fuddy duddies in their own right. (laughs) (laughs) My comment on the the matte painting thing is I wonder if it's matte paintings that that we have an affinity for. And there's a. And Sharon, you may know more about this. This is very. I'm not in any way an expert, but something about we have an affinity for things. The more real they appear, the more our brain likes it. And that I think that matte paintings almost feel more real than, you know, like you were saying, you know, a massive warehouse with, you know, a mile of, you know, towers of boxes. Mm, I I think you might be onto something there, actually, Debbie. I think it's it's possibly in the same bracket as uh, the Uncanny Valley Valley effect when you're talking about uh, CG-created characters, in that... When you see certain things in a film, you accept it more easily if you don't notice it. If your mind can almost see it and then just write it off as part of the the fabric of the movie. If you start thinking about it too much, the effect has uh, failed in some capacity. Absolutely. If yeah. if you if you built a room that was as big as you could possibly get it and filled it with boxes, they did in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. They literally did exactly yeah. that, and no. it is not an impressive sequence. No, no. Uh. Well, yeah, but that's that's. <laughs> was that the least impressive sequence in the whole film? That was the, was the most, most impressive sequence of the whole. Film. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's my point. If your brain looks at that, it then goes well that's just a room full of boxes and I logically know it can only be so big because they can only get so many boxes in this room that they're filming in Um, and it's like I've said to you about um, 3D TV when you use it on a scene which is supposed to be massive Mm. it makes it look like a diorama because your brain is going well this is in my TV it can logically only be this big it doesn't do the translation that it does when it sees a movie scene that's Mm. that big 
I think in that case, though, um, it was uh, a matte painting that was disc- that in the same way as Gone with the Wind. You are supposed to be feeling something very big when you see that painting, which is they're wheeling this giant crate. Now we've got to do Raiders. This, gi- this crate <laughs> down the aisle and look at how many other crates there are. Oh, my God. How many other things are in there? Then da 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 credits. So that was it. No! I have a great theory on the connection between the ends of... Um the three Indiana Jones movies. Tell us. If we discount the Crystal Skull. Tell us. Right, okay. There are only three Indiana Jones The end of Raiders, (laughs) okay. Even when there's a fifth one, it'll only be four Indiana Jones It's to do with the artifacts. Um, It's to do with the artifacts. The end of Raiders um, is something which bestows uh, the power of God, Mm -hmm. right? The end of uh, Temple Temple the stones bestow the ability to control things. Mm-hmm. And the end of um, Crusade, it's the grail which grants immortality. Only within the confines of the temple. Yes, but the point being way off the that uh, Indy kind of refuses all of them, and that's why he's the hero and not the villain. Because yeah. he's not trying to oh. grasp power, control and immortality. Yeah. Hmm. Even when he's searching specifically for fortune and glory. Fortune mm-hmm. and glory, kid. Um, God, now I want to do it. But just they're coming, fortune, folks. We're going to do it. We'll do them. I promise. That is Eventually. fortune and glory that is within his human grasp. He's not trying to outstretch his um place. My mother's ears. But the rest is all yours. Um. Okay. So, Sir and Charles, I was like watching Sir and going, "That is Big Daddy." Out of uh. Django Unchained went to IMDb. It is indeed Don Johnson, literally, literally, mm. yeah, playing the same kind of role <laughs> as of just bringing this character from this book that kids, sh- this movie that kids should not have seen, uh, just for the grown-ups. And then Reese Darby from Flight of the Concords coming in there as this, you know, lovely hapless guy. It's immediately apparent where their relationship stands just by the casting. It was really weird timing oh, though because we. Freeman. <laughs> yeah, we'd uh, we'd been watching Fly to the Concords and then suddenly started seeing Reese Darby everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any like uh, we mentioned these guys earlier. Uh, any, any more to say? Because uh, this is obviously now we're beyond the movie because uh, we've moved beyond that. I'll be coming back to the bit at the end of the movie at the end of the podcast because it's my favourite bit in the whole series. In spite of the fact that clearly Sir is awful. And Charles is a complete and utter coward. Given the subtext of what their relationship clearly is, you have a certain... I felt just a small bit of sympathy for them. Just not for... Not for, the again, that horrible things happen and it's their fault. And absolutely true. But at the same time, they do have a relationship, and I think, I I get the impression Sir does care about Charles at least a little bit. And maybe I'm totally reading into their relationship and that's totally not there. But I I felt just a modicum of sympathy. Just just a little bit. Because they seem just a little bit more human. Hmm. See, while I agree that they do seem very, very human... I don't think that Sir genuinely... It's an abusive relationship, and I recognize this because I've survived an abusive relationship, and I've been in Charles's place, making excuses, 
pretending that the person isn't as bad as they very clearly are. And I, I sort of recognized that immediately, and I couldn't even be surprised at the end when Charles is still making excuses, saying it's not all black and white at the end, because I've done that, and I recognize it. Like I said, that may just be me reading into things and something that's completely not there. Well, I think there's... it's the power dynamic more than anything else um, emphasizes Sir's position that he's he is in charge and like with a capital I and a capital C he's in charge of the mill he's in charge of the village clearly he's managed to pull all the strings to make sure that everybody obeys him in to the way he sees the world it's almost like why should Charles be any different just because he's his partner um, you know that it's um, it, it seems almost to be the, the natural way of things to him that everybody should do what he tells them to do. I'm not necessarily... Yeah, no. I'm not saying that yeah. that is an acceptable way to be, but I don't think it necessarily precludes the idea that he does care about him on some level, even if he is expressing that in a um, very... Um, what's the word, a very maladaptive and abusive manner. Um, I think, yeah, there is sort of the, the impression that they, there is caring of some kind between them, even if it's not all that healthy for e- either of them. Question, are Mr. and Mrs. Quagmire in the books? No. Uh, yeah, no, They. there's a reason for that. Hmm. And you'll see it in the next season. <laughs> right. Um, the, the, this threw me because uh, it felt at the beginning, because they give you so little information, like uh, the Baudelaire orphans' uh, parents were still alive. And I didn't find out until today, definitely through checking, that um, even though we see them with this other family, I'm thinking, hang on, was this what, exactly what, what was this about? Um, that they, they aren't, in fact, the, the Baudelaire's parents. And that... Little piece of information at the end of the first, uh, so the second episode, the end of uh, the bad beginning, made Lyra sit up and take notice. And suddenly she was, uh, she's, she was always liked the film, but she is now like checking clues. She's watching things very carefully. She's assembling her own case files, and uh, she's you know <laughs> hypothesizing on people's motives. And um, it's an extremely well put together show for smart children. And uh, that's obviously what the uh, books were always intended to be. And to that end, it's a triumph. Uh, if it's got Lyra that hooked on it. So she's really, in- she's really enjoying it then, oh my the show? Oh my God, she loves it. She can't wait. She- we were like, all right, that's it for like an- a year. And she was like, no! It's like us getting to the end of Bojack Horseman. Oh, she is massively invested. Massively invested. Yeah. Um, and she was, she was quite heartbroken when they, because um, obviously the whole setup with the the Quagmires um, getting back to their children, mm. um, and that the bit in the the miserable mill where they're approaching the door and the Baudelaire's are approaching the door from the other side, mm-hmm. it, it it is almost cruel. Oh no, it's cruel. <sighs> There's no almost it's, it's about totally it. Cruel. The Justice and... Strauss thing is almost cruel. This is cruel. Yeah. Well, and um, clearly they it, were setting it up so he would assume that these are the Baudelaire parents, even though it's okay, never yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. they're very careful to, you know, like, there's no specific reason, nothing that's 
done says that these are the Baudelaire parents. Hmm. But they're yeah. clearly that's they're positioned as such. Yeah. 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 There's and a... it's, it's good for the fantasy element of it in the sense that who doesn't want their mom to their mom and dad to be super spies. A shield agent in Batman. Yeah. 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 It's perfect casting um, on that. Also, the way that they're so super serious about everything and super professional about it, and the way that that's framed, it's very Wes Anderson, which is always going to win yeah. points with me. Yeah. Yes. That's kind of what I got throughout this whole entire series. It felt very um, exaggerated, and, uh, and uh, what else would I describe Wes Anderson as? Wes Anderson's version would be rooted in the 70s with this sort of, like, you know, brown specific aesthetic. Yeah. Their scenes are, are very deliberately symmetrical as well a lot of the time, which yeah, is, yeah. is Wes Anderson's thing. Yeah. Um, as a, When I finished watching the first episode and they showed uh, the parents in the back of the carriage prison thing, mm-hmm. I uh, I just I freaked out. Like, I... Yeah. Because I, 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 I thought that I thought that it was the belt of their parents. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? What are you doing with this general handler? Um, and then, and then the moment that we cut to three children in a mansion with a butler, I was like, wait, wait a second, something's going on here. Yep. And then I just like, uh, the quagmires, they're so good. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for you guys to meet them. Okay. So which version of, uh, of this book, film or show is your favorite, your personal, like, if you had to choose one of them, I would say the okay. Desert Island, but uh, if, you, if, you, if you, the other two are going to get struck out of existence, which would it be? Uh, for me, I would definitely say books, just on how I felt, just growing up with them and reading, reading them and learning so much with them as well. I do think that the series is excellent, and I do have a much much better appreciation of the film now now that I have gotten a second viewing of it and gotten a real real uh whatchamacallit a real grasp of what it was trying to do and how successful it was at it. I'd probably say T V show. The way that it just starts and the way everything starts happening. I love it. <laughs> it's definitely way more recommendable to people to, than the books because it's so funny and it's so lively compared to the other two personally i would go with the show and i haven't read the books so like that might change in the future but um the thing that i like about the show is that there's a lot going on uh first of all i love a good conspiracy story and uh, everything with the vfd and all of that just really gets me but also there's a lot of very subtle things going on um like something i didn't realize until about 15 minutes before we started recording is how personal the show's Snicket takes everything. And, you know, especially when you when he's talking about the book that the book that um the woman he loved wrote to him to explain why they couldn't be together. Mm. And since he's the writer, I'm believing that this is Beatrice is this particular woman. I could be wrong. Ah. But in my head, the theory that I've got going is he was very much in love with Beatrice Baudelaire who wrote him a book about how she's in love with somebody else. She dies. He tries to protect the children, fails at that. And this is his penance, trying to recreate everything as much as possible 
to tell their story because he couldn't keep them either alive or happy or, you know, couldn't help them avoid all of this pain out of deference to her. That's just that's just the thing in my head. But that's there's enough, I think, evidence in the show to draw that conclusion. And that's just one example of the many things in the show that you can really play around with. After all these years, you still care for her. Can we just get Patrick Warburton to say always for us? <laughs> always. <laughs> I definitely would personally go with the show. Um, I, I Like I mentioned, the strong reaction, strong negative reaction I had to the book. And I was going into the show, I was skeptical. Um, and, and watching the movie didn't really help with that because as I mentioned that seemed like all the other adults were brain damaged in the movie. Um, but in the show, I, I really liked the show a lot. I, I like I like the way they balance the the naivete and the obliviousness of the other adults against Count Olaf and his scheming. And he still comes across as scheming and getting away with things, but he's also a buffoon and also also ridiculous. And it's it's an interesting balancing act that NPH does. And I, I, I really, really enjoyed the show. And some of the asides, especially, I think a lot of the lines from Sunny will make me laugh out loud. Hmm. Like her love of Tito Puente. Hmm. <laughs> because, sure. <laughs> I, I, it's amazing. I, I, I really love... I, I think my, the asides, some of Count Olaf's reactions to... Especially in uh, his reaction to Aunt Josephine as Captain Sham, mm. when she says she disconnected her doorbell, he's like, oh yeah, uh, wait, what? And you're like, wait, this guy's like, oh, this lady's crazy. <laughs> She's actually the mayor of Crazy Town. Yes. <laughs> Sonny's very important, actually, for keeping things light and for being able to connect it with, with uh, little kids. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she's 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 wonderful in both of them. Um, Sharon, which do you prefer of all of these? I think the series for me, um, for two main reasons. Patrick Warburton, first of all, I think is absolutely marvellous mm-hmm. um, at holding it all together. And the second thing is actually kind of related, and that's the addition of the bigger picture stuff. Mm. The fact that it's moving forwards and will continue and hopefully complete is a huge deal for me. It, it's, uh, it, it, you know, I will always, I'll be, be recommending the series over the film to most people. Um, but of the three, I favour the film. And I will tell you for why. Because it's not about the overall grand picture story for me. It's not about... Um, you know, the, the, the large tapestry that I'm being told. For me, oftentimes, it can just boil down to one moment. And um, this was a moment that was actually made up for the film. It was, uh, they, they needed a decent ending uh, after they'd shifted around the um, bad beginning to sort of be the ending as well. And it's not a, a suitable enough closer. And they had to have something that would um, allow you to feel that that something had proceeded. So they set up the ending first with the sanctuary. Was that in the books? I don't recall that being in the books when they're at Enola's um, house. I don't, I don't think so. 
Viola puts yeah, I don't on think her, so. Viola puts on her hair ribbon, which, by the way, whenever she does that, Lyra cheers. She loves smiling. <laughs> just doing that. Yeah. She puts up her hair, which is to keep her hair out of her eyes so she can see ahead of her, which is how she focuses. Um, and she uh, turns uh, their parents' silhouettes into a magic lantern and puts them up against this little tent that they make. But the the pinnacle of, of these three is, and this is from my um, movie A Day about this, it comes at the end of the film in a scene which uh, was dreamed up to provide the satisfying close. The orphans slowly walk into the golden memory of their house, only for it to transform into the reality of the burned-out ruin with ash falling about them like snow. And I've got to call out Emmanuel Lubezki, who, who was a cinematographer on uh, Sleepy Hollow as well. It, he has this amazing ability with light. This scene is, is, is dreamlike and bittersweet, and uh, it, it's, it's wonderful. And Thomas Newman's score is playing through very delicately at this point. He's not um, pushing it home. This isn't melodrama. Because this violence was caused by cruel, terrible people, and their actions can often overwhelm us. No personal gain could surely be worth this senseless loss. The children find a letter that never came from their parents that they miss so dearly, the last words that they may ever read from them. And the part that stuck with me is at times this world may seem like an unfriendly and sinister place, but believe that there is much more good in it than bad. All you have to do is look hard enough, and what might seem to be a series of unfortunate events may in fact be the first steps of a journey. Now, Dan himself has, uh, has expressed that he's uh, um, uh, I think, uh, an atheist humanist or something like that, um, but uh, his expression was that he doesn't believe in destiny, he doesn't believe that uh, in karma or that if you do good things, the good things will happen to you, or if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. Uh, he believes in doing good things because it's the right thing to do. And not specifically for a reward at all, but just because if everybody did that, the world would actually be a better place. And this seems very much in line with that philosophy. So being written by someone who wasn't him, they seem to get him, or at least the important part of the books, in such a crystallized way that all the rest of it is frankly window dressing to this one moment. It is an unutterably beautiful sequence and one that I will take with me. And I try so very hard to impart to others with my work. As a belief, it requires nothing more than enough people to share it to make it true. And that trumps He's fucked that word, hasn't he? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me rephrase. And that surpasses everything else, no matter how much the uh, TV show uh, impresses me in the future or what the uh, books have to offer. This one incredibly strong moment is going to take some beating. That is why the film resonates with me. Thank you guys all so, so much for coming on the show. It has been uh, a joy to uh, pick over these details with you guys. No thank problem. you so much. Thank yeah, you. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. We watched the series because of doing this, and it was worth it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Okay, right. So uh, uh, where can people find you, uh, Karu? And uh, if you, you want to also add to this. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you can find me at sequentially-yours.com, where I talk about comic books um, and comic book-related media. 
Uh, Debbie also helps out on one of the shows on there, Cinematically Ours, uh, which is our comic book movie reviewing. Um, Debbie? Uh, you can finally fi- you can find me mainly on Twitter, best at 8300. Um, and I'm I'm pretty active. Um, so always happy to, to happy to chat with anybody. You can find me on Twitter at C Y B R P U N K W A R L O K. You can mainly find me there ranting about comic books. I also co host um Tashi Station's Throncast. It's a podcast where we're going through um, all the Thrawn books in uh, in celebration of his coming to Star Wars Rebels. Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. You can find me at youtube.com slash Shield of Shade, which is C-H-I-L-D-E-O-B-S-H-A-D-E. A bit of a weird spelling right there. But uh, I do occasionally do reviews of movies and video games and um, sometimes TV shows. At the time, though, unfortunately, I haven't done one quite a while just because of how busy my schedule is. And you can also find me at Twitter at at Shield of Shade, which is once again C H I L D E O B S H A D E. And once again, weird spelling right there, but there's a story behind it. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was just because Twitter is stupid and doesn't like the letter C. <laughs> On the Patreon at the $5 level this month, you can listen to our bonus deleted material shows from The Fifth Element, The Golden Compass, Bojack Horseman, and The Room. And the Lego Ninjago and Blade Runner 2049 quick reviews, plus everything else coming up in November and everything else we've done before. A huge thank you to our special patrons this month at the $15 level. Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. You guys are our own special Spyglass Society. Consider this, gentle listener, as broken off and as unfinished as the film feels, sitting there in solitude with no follow-up, I would posit that this makes it more relevant, more precious, more comforting at the times we need it most. Because times like these feel broken, wrong, unfinished, unscripted. It's so hard to conceive that things will get better because if you believe in fate, then you have to accept that it will ask more and more of you while you hang on waiting for things to turn out all right in the end. And if fate is just our minds slotting things into handy boxes, and it really is up to us to make the world better, what can good people do when the system feels so stacked against reason, research, kindness and compassion? Plenty of movie series get to end satisfyingly. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Back to the Future. But of course the reality is that there is no happy end. There are just moments of horror and moments of safety and content, all amid the many, many moments of mundanity which form the building blocks of our lives. This bit of cinema to me will always feel like one of those moments of safety, respite and being able to breathe in before all the screaming starts again. I cherish it every single time. Violet, Klaus, and Sunny. It's addressed to us. Look at all these postmarks. 
been to England and Rome and Kenya and Iceland. I don't even know where these are from. Who's it from? Mom and Dad. the letter. The letter that never came. Dearest children, since we've been abroad, we have missed you all so much. Certain events have compelled us to extend our travels. One day, when you're older, you will learn all about the people we have befriended and the dangers we have faced. At times, the world can seem an unfriendly and sinister place. But believe us when we say that there is much more good in it than bad. All you have to do is look hard enough. And what might seem to be a series of unfortunate events may, in fact, be the first steps of a journey. We hope to have you back in our arms soon, darlings. But in case this letter arrives before our return, know that we love you. It fills us with pride to know that no matter what happens in this life, that you three will take care of each other with kindness and bravery and selflessness, as you always have. And remember one thing, my darlings, and never forget it. That no matter where we are, know that as long as you have each other, you have your family, and you are home. Your loving parents. Passing the torch is a rite of passage that can take many forms, but perhaps the least known and most surprising is the passing of a spyglass. Dear reader, there are people in the world who know no misery and woe, and they take comfort in cheerful films about twittering birds and giggling elves. There are people who know that there's always a mystery to be solved, and they take comfort in researching and writing down any important evidence. But this story is not about such people. This story is about the Baudelaire's, and they are the sort of people who know. That there's always something, something to invent, something to read, something to bite, and something to do to make a sanctuary, no matter how small. And for this reason, I am happy to say, the Baudelaires were very fortunate. Indeed.
See you next week for Thor Ragnarok. Thank you.
That's not quite lawful. It's hard to fathom how the orphans manage to live through it, or how a decent person like yourself would even want to view it. Just look away, look away. There's nothing but horror and inconvenience on the way. Ask any stable person, should I watch? And they will say, look away, look away, 